Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. What happened to political comedy? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I cover politics for a living, and I also love stand-up comedy. Don't get me wrong, a comic can be political and funny. There are tons of examples of that. But most partisan comics have always bored me to death. For me, the best comedy is reflective and honest. It spares no one and nothing. In this episode, I talked to Bill Maher, a great stand-up and the longtime host of HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Maher is a political comic, but I've always enjoyed his work. And I think that's because I've never really considered him a partisan comedian, even though conservatives are the butt of most of his jokes. Maher is clearly a liberal. We all know that. And he'll tell you that. But for all his anti-Republican bits, and there are plenty, you also get tons of jabs at the left. If you want a couple of examples, check out his recent segments on progressophobia and cultural appropriation. Progressophobia. That's the phrase coined by Steven Pinker to describe a brain disorder that strikes liberals and makes them incapable of recognizing progress. If you think America is more racist now than ever, you have progressophobia and should adjust your mask because it's covering your eyes. Love him or hate him, Marr just says what he thinks all the time. Depending on the day, Twitter progressives are as likely to be pissed off at him as MAGA conservatives. And I suspect that has a lot to do with the enduring success of his show, which premiered all the way back in 2003. So I wanted to talk to him about how a guy who donated a million dollars famously to Obama's presidential campaign, who's been way out front on issues like animal rights and climate change, became such a lightning rod to a certain species of progressive. Bill Maher, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm told you're a very controversial liberal, Bill. Uh, am I going to get canceled for having you on today? You're told? I'm told you're very problematic. That's the word on the street. Yeah, that's why I don't go on the street that much. But, um, <laughs> you know, the word problematic to me is problematic. 
I don't like that word. I don't like a lot of these weasel words. Problematic. It's such a cheap way to be enlightened, to find something that's problematic, probably because somebody did it years ago when everybody was okay with it. And if you were around then, you would have been okay with it. I don't mean you. I mean, you know. No, of course yeah, not. Yeah, I mean you. and the, <laughs> the, I'm talking to the people I don't like. Yeah, the royal you? <laughs> yeah, the royal you, the unroyal you. I, seriously, I don't think we've ever talked about it. Why do you think you're such a, a lightning rod? Again, I, I hate these cliched phrases, but whatever. Forgive me. Like, for, for, A lot of people on the left don't like you, and I don't really get it, but they don't. You know that. What do you make of that? First of all, it's not a lot of people on the left. It's the people who are loud on the left. Yeah. Yeah, you hear about the crybabies and the, the people who whine and scream and who wake up offended. And of course, they're always going to be angry at people who tell the truth and who don't conform to the one true opinion. Because in their world, there is only one true opinion, even though it's very often a bullshit opinion, not informed by facts or certainly not by nuance or context. And I don't play that game. It's odd that by being a person who does not care about the likes, I once had a billboard that said he's not in it for the likes. I remember that. You wind up being liked by a lot more people because there's a real thirst in America for someone who'll do that. And everyone else, most everyone else is scared, cowed, or they just are afraid of what the reaction will be. They're afraid of being canceled. They're afraid of of someone saying, I don't like that, and this person should go away. Or if they get two emails, they think that the sponsors will pull. I don't know what they're thinking, and I don't care. I don't follow that. I just do what I do. Well, maybe a good place to start is just to sort of identify who it is we're actually talking about. Like you said, it's not the left. It's not liberals. It's like the loudest people on the left. So who are these people, the progressive phobes and the people that – you know, are annoying you or criticizing you? I mean, are we talking about media elites? Are we talking about the toddlers on Twitter? Um, are we talking about the Democratic Party? I mean, who is it? What is the part of the left that is sort of getting all the attention in this way? I think it's mostly the people you just named. And they don't really annoy me that much because I don't pay attention to them. They, I do annoy them. If I read Twitter, I'm sure it would be a horrible experience, but I... It's not great. I, why would I? I mean, they have studied this. Who's on Twitter? It's like 80% of the tweets are by 10% of the people on Twitter or something. What I always say about Twitter is anything I would want to say on Twitter, I can't say on Twitter. So what's the point of it? It, it started out as something where, oh, you know, if you have a thought, you could share it with the world and they would find it amusing or interesting or the start of a conversation. Well, is that what Twitter is now? Of course not. I could tweet every day. I never tweet anymore, hardly, because, again, what's the point? I could say good morning, and the first 10 tweets back would be, of course, with your white privilege, every morning is a good morning. You know, why do that? And it's a shame, because it did start out as something that could be interesting and was interesting for a while, but then it got taken over by the cry bullies. They're the mean girls in the school, and they are the enforcers. And that's kind of a shame because so much is lost when you can't speak freely. I just think as a comedian, all the jokes that have been choked down by people, not me that much, because obviously I don't care and I'm always 
in trouble because that's what I do. But I know a lot of people, and sometimes me too, to be honest, things that just don't go enunciated. They go unsaid because people pull back. Oh, I better not say that. So you wind up with this world where everyone is like a press spokesman for the president, watching every word so carefully, walking on eggshells. No wonder why people turn against democratic politicians who don't stand up to that. I mean, let's be honest. Trump was a big hero to a lot of people who were very cognizant of all his flaws because he was politically incorrect in a terrible way. (laughs) I did a show called Politically Incorrect, and I thought I was doing it in the right way. He was doing it in a stupid way. (laughs) But what was in common was that he doesn't back down. He says what he actually thinks, unvarnished. He doesn't apologize. Of course, he was always doubling down on some stupid opinion. But in a world where people were choking on political correctness, that was very attractive and remains attractive and is always going to be a Achilles heel for the left. You know, the left, the Democratic politicians, whenever they lose an election, they always say, well, we didn't get our message out. To which I say, no, you did. <laughs> no. That's the problem, is you did get your message out. And the messages were a bunch of pussies who never stand up to the most ridiculous things on the left. And we look like we're fragile and childish and weak. And people notice. Well, I'm glad you mentioned your show, right? Because your first show, Politically Incorrect, that launched in, what, 1993, right? Correct. So this is obviously not a new thing. What is it about this moment that feels different? or worse than it was then? Because there does seem to be a lot of parallels, right? I mean, I remember, I mean, I was really young then, but, you know, you had the same situation where you had conservatives, it's the early 90s, you know, the Soviet Union had kind of fallen apart and they'd lost their kind of go-to political boogeyman. And then in that vacuum emerged political correctness. And the battlefield was on college campuses. It all feels so old. What is it about now that just feels, I don't know, more intense or worse than it was then? It just got worse. I don't know if it has anything to do with the Soviet Union. I think it has to do with parenting. It's funny, when I was a kid, I remember my parents and that generation thinking that we were soft and fragile. Every generation in America seems to get more soft and more fragile. And when I look back at my childhood, it's hysterical because we were friggin' Marines compared to what goes on today. I mean, we, we did things routinely that a parent would be arrested for now, like walking home alone. Kids can't walk alone anymore. They can't do anything alone. We were free range. Are you Gen X? No, I'm, I'm a millennial just barely. I was born in 82, so I think the cutoff is 80. So I'm kind of almost okay. a tweener, but I'm, I'm an old millennial. Because Gen X seems to be the last sane generation. They were the last generation that was like the one I had. They did things on their own. They weren't hovered over it. It wasn't a helicopter parent generation for the most part. But it just got insanely self-protective. And in that atmosphere where kids are raised, I mean, this has been written about ad nauseum with smoke blowing up their ass. Everything they do is an enormous achievement, you know, and they're... You just see it. I mean, I see it, not just in television and movies where every child-parent relationship 
is usually portrayed the same way. So I don't see a lot of kids in my personal life, but occasionally I do. And parents are always apologizing to their kids. They're always asking for their forgiveness, saying stupid things like, my kid is my hero. He's six. Why is he your fucking hero, you moron? <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> and they're, and they look like they're afraid of their kids. I used to say it in my act, you know, everything starts out with, Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. Are you ready to leave? Ready to leave? My father used to say, get in the fucking car. You know, <laughs> there was no asking or negotiating. <laughs> so I think that's really is the providence of the problem is that sort of parenting that as the years went by, it just turned around more and more where the parents were afraid of the children as opposed to the children being, we were, yes, we were a little afraid as you should be. Certainly in my day, you would never hear a kid say, fuck you, mom, as I've heard many times in many television shows and movies. Fuck you, mom. I wouldn't be here now. I'd be dead. And I think those kids who grew up spoiled and entitled and coddled, they can't stand one second of something being uncomfortable. This is where you get trigger warnings and stuff like that. And they can't stand anyone who disagrees with them because they, they're perfect. So their opinion must be right. So people who don't agree should die. You know, you see a lot of that with the younger generation. If they don't agree with you, you should die. Die. <laughs> and it just, each generation seems to get worse. The Gen Z people fight with your generation. The millennials think the Gen Zs are too fragile. Like, wow. Look, don't don't get me going on this because I'll never shut the hell up. Go, um, I want to hear it. People are listening to hear you, so I'll save my Gen Z rants for later. But let's try to get some clarity on, on a couple of terms that you and I use a lot. But the problem is that they're so overused at this point that they've been stretched into meaninglessness. And I just want to be clear what you're referring to, or at least what you have in mind when you say something like political correctness, or even even a term like wokeness, which has become a kind of catch-all pejorative at this point. I think most people vaguely know what it refers to, but what are these things? When you use these terms, what are you talking about? Well, back in the day when I did the show, people would always ask me, what is politically incorrect? What is politically correct? I would always say political correctness was the elevation of sensitivity over truth. I still think that's a very usable definition and it suits the purpose and it describes it. Woke to me is a offshoot of liberalism that bastardized liberalism. You know, the way sometimes that happens with sex and religions, you know, there's a religion and then there's some sect that breaks off. I guess Christianity <laughs> really is was what happened with Judaism. I mean, Jesus, as we all know, was a Jew, and it started out as a Jewish offshoot and then became its own thing. Um, I don't know if that's a perfect analogy. I'm sure it's not in many ways. But wokeness, to me, inverts liberalism in so many ways. Liberalism, for example, was about achieving a colorblind society. Wokeness seems to be about always seeing race everywhere. Well, those are two things that are in opposition to each other. And I'm going to stake my claim with the old liberals on that one and on many of the issues where the wokeness has come to the fore. Again, a lot of it is, I think, just generational. I think some of it is not about policy. It's just about every generation wants to do the opposite of what the one before them did. 
even if it makes no sense. Yeah, I think the idea that wokeness is illiberal is there's a lot of truth there. I think what a lot of people mean when they say that is that it's overly censorious, that it's basically anti-free speech. I mean, is that more or less your impression? Oh, it's absolutely anti-free speech. As I was saying before, when you raise kids with the idea that they should not have to suffer one moment <laughs> of being uncomfortable about anything, it's only logical that it's going to follow that they're not for free speech because sometimes if you have free speech, you're going to hear things that are upsetting, as you should. That's the price of free speech, that things we don't like, things we even abhor, must be tolerated. And most of it you can avoid. You don't like me? Don't watch. There's no gun to your head. You could avoid most of the things you don't want to hear. And unfortunately, people do, which is why we're partly in the situation we're in with this horrible rampant tribalism, because nobody hears anything that they don't already agree with. I was having dinner with some people recently, and there was a very woke person at the table. And it was like two minutes into the dinner. I forget what I was talking about or what we were talking about. But I mean, right away, there was this, what are you implying? And I, I just felt this panic from this person, like, oh, my God, am I going to hear something I don't already agree with? Am I going to hear something that Rachel Maddow hasn't said? Calm down. You might hear something you don't agree with, and you might find you'll learn something. Or maybe what you thought you knew isn't the complete truth. But that's not where people are on either the left or the right now. They only want to stay in their silos and be reconfirmed in what they think they know. This may be a good place to push a little bit because I think you're right in some ways and, and maybe wrong in another way that actually obscures how difficult the problem really is. You could say, and I've argued this, that speech has actually never been more free in the sense that there have never been fewer barriers to entry right into the public conversation. And the number of voices participating have never been greater. The internet, it hasn't democratized our political systems, that's for sure, but it's absolutely democratized our culture, right? And so we're in this weird situation, this paradoxical situation in which we've had an explosion of speech, and that has actually given rise to an explosion of threats to speech. So the problem isn't exactly a lack of speech, it's an overabundance of speech and the chaos that that has unleashed. And I think there's an assumption that free speech leads to more speech and more speech leads to better speech, but it's not, it's not quite right. More speech means more challenges to speech and more battles over where the boundaries ought to be. There's always a conversation about where the boundaries are. And so the discourse may be as free and democratic as it's ever been, but because of that openness, it's vulnerable to all these pressures from within that undermine it. I guess what I'm really saying is that free speech actually contains the seeds of its own destruction by unleashing forces that turn against it. And I think that's kind of where we're at now. And you know, as someone who's a stand-up in particular, I'm just curious what you make of, of all of that, if you make anything at all. I don't really agree with most of it because speech is one thing and ideas are another. I mean, yes, you can have a million people babbling. If they're all saying the same thing, it adds up to nothing. What matters is being able to put forth ideas and have them be accepted as part of the dialogue. You don't agree, then confront it with more speech as opposed to confronting it with, you have to go away. I mean, this is the world we're living in now. That to me is not a world I ever remember as far as free speech goes. I mean, we were afraid that 
government would be the ones to clap down on free speech. And that still is a concern. It certainly was more of a concern when Trump was president. But it's almost more insidious when the threat from against free speech happens among the people than it is from the government. And good luck if you say something that is not approved by the powers that be on the left. And that sometimes on the right, I mean, they're snowflakes too. I mean, they'll try anything. I mean, they'll appropriate any term, you know, like cancel culture. <laughs> they tried to take over that one right away, just like they did with fake news. And of course, they have no shame, but I expect them to have no shame. I'm not expecting anything from them. I do expect more from the left. They should own the First Amendment the way the conservatives own the Second Amendment. Look, I think we agree here, actually. I mean, I, we agree in, that the threats are real. I guess what I'm saying is the threats don't exist because our society has been closed down more, become less free. The problems exist because we've actually become more open and more free. And an open society is hard, man. It's not self-securing. If you want freedom and openness, great. Me too. Everyone should. But it also means we're going to drown and sophistry and bullshit and misinformation and propaganda and all manner of dumbassery. It's just baked into the cake. And, you know, the internet is just sort of unleashed all of this. And no one really has an answer for it. We're just figuring out in real time. Pardon the pun. Good. We should be drowning in it. The answer to speech you don't like is more speech. Always has been. It's not new. Yes, the internet allows more people to be heard. That's good. But it didn't used to be that when people heard something they didn't agree with, their immediate reaction was, this person must go away permanently. And if you look at the polling from the younger generations, they don't even really understand the concept of free speech or think it's that important in numbers that are new. They think not being offended is much more important than free speech. That is a new development and a very alarming one. And again, it goes back to how they were raised, I think. What do you think is a greater threat at this moment, though, given everything we said about the left and the excesses on the left? Is it the illiberal left or the authoritarian right or the illiberal right? I mean, in terms of like... Oh, the right. You know, okay. The right is, okay. I mean, you know, you're asking me questions about the left, but yeah. I never lose the perspective. The right is playing with a kind of fire that even they have never played with before. I mean, we have lots of people serving in the government who don't believe in our form of government. What do you do about that? What do you do when the people who were part of an insurrection, who don't accept the results of a legitimate election, are still serving in the government? That is the number one problem. Behind that is this other problem on the left that's going to get them reelected. That's the biggest threat from the left. I mean, obviously, there are these other things we're talking about that are terrible and pernicious in their own way. But beyond all that, when you look at the average American who doesn't follow the news as closely as we do, and they have a choice between Trump or a Trump-like person, and these people who they see having no common sense they're very often going to pick the Trump person, even though they understand that that person is deeply flawed. Remember Trump last time when he ran, a lot of what he said when he was running was, you got no choice. That was his big line. 
In other words, he wasn't really bragging about his own achievements because there really weren't that many. His thing was, you got no choice. In other words, yeah, I'm crazy, and we all know that, but they're crazy too. They're crazy in their own way, and in their way, it's a lot closer to home. You know, if you have a kid in school and <laughs> the kid comes home and he's four years old and says he thinks he's a girl now, and the school is saying, well, if a kid says that, you just got to go along. I could see why a parent is saying, you know, maybe we should hold off on this until we don't have to make choo-choo noises to get the food in his mouth. You know, maybe it's a little early to be making these decisions. I know Mario Lopez was almost canceled because he said on a podcast that a three-year-old maybe shouldn't be making decisions about his gender. Maybe that's a little young for that. And he had to make a cringing Soviet-style apology to the LGBT community. That kind of stuff hits so much closer to home than whatever Trump was doing in Ukraine. Now, I think what Trump did with Ukraine was absolutely impeachable. I understand why they had to do it. I also understand why it went nowhere. But to the average guy out there, you know, it's like Ukraine's very far away and this kid's in my house and he's my child. That's what's going to lose them a lot of elections. Well, this is the thing I've struggled with, and I don't know if it even bothers you at all. But, you know, for all the bitching about cancel culture and, and God, I've done a lot of it. And I'll do plenty more, I'm sure, because it is, I think, toxic and counterproductive, or at least most of it is. But at the same time, as you said, the right is a much graver threat at the moment. And sometimes I just worry spending so much time and energy on, you know, Twitter toddlers bitching about whatever, doing that is certainly helping to pave the way for, you know, the right wing's actual legislative war on free speech and academic freedom. And I don't think either one of us provokes for the sake of provocation, but it's just, it is hard to weigh some of these trade-offs, right? No, because like I just said, they're connected. We live in a binary world. People, we don't live in a parliamentary democracy where you have 10 different parties. You have two choices. You have Coke or Pepsi. And at the end of the day, that's what people are going to have to decide. Which one is crazier? Now, it shouldn't be hard to not lose a crazy contest to Donald Trump or any of his followers. But it turns out it is. It would be so easy for the Democrats to win every election if they just stuck to the things that actually matter to people and got out of this bullshit woke world where they're trying to appease Twitter, which is not America and it's not real people. I mean, I could quote you some things from what the Democrat candidate said in the last run up to their, you know, when they were choosing their candidate before Biden got the nomination. And some of it is just you just can't believe it, you know, that the Boston Marathon bomber should get to vote or or we should pay for prisoners in prison to have sex change operations. I mean, just crazy shit that you think, why? What are you, what are you gaining by this? Yeah, but those candidates lost, though, right? I mean, it was Biden, right? The most kind of milquetoast moderate of all of them who won, right? I mean, that's more representative of the Democratic Party than you know, the loudest people on Twitter. Yeah. And that's because of the black voters in the Democratic Party. That's who right. saved the Democratic Party. Yep. Much more practical. As I've said a number of times on my show, to the white loathers, the people who hate themselves for being white and who are always obsessed with the notion of 
privilege, which, you know, is a real thing to a degree, but probably not to the degree some of them take it to. To me, the ultimate white privilege is having the luxury to be unpractical about things, which they are very often not practical at all. This guy, Eric Adams in New York, I'm a big fan. I think he's going to do a lot for the Democratic Party. And it just shows you, even in Democratic New York, who did they pick? Who won it? The ex-Republican, ex-cop, law and order candidate who does not want to get rid of the police. Let's take a quick break. But when we're back, was the Trump era a comedy goldmine? Or was it, you know, the opposite? I asked Bill after the break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. How do you think the comedy world in general handled the Trump era? I have some thoughts on it, but I'm curious what you think. I'm not really sure how the comedy world handled it. In general, if you want to broaden it out to the media, it was a very difficult time because of his particular and peculiar nature. It was impossible to both stay neutral as CNN would have tried to do under a normal president, right? You'd have a, a, I mean, you watch CNN. And you saw them try at the beginning of the Trump administration. They would have a Trump supporter on. But then, of course, you'd have people who are supporting a nonsensical proposition that no reasonable person could get behind. So CNN wound up being basically MSNBC light. It was very hard not to. What I object to now is that he's gone. Go back to what you were. And I don't feel like that pivot has taken place. But again, I don't see cable news that much anymore. I just got too tired of it. I couldn't take it during the pandemic. And I don't feel like it's a place where you get actual valuable information that much. There are exceptions. I still really like my Brian Williams. (laughs) But as far as comedy goes, you know, I did a special in 2018. And it was, I thought, pretty hysterical because Trump was of course, comedy gold. I mean, this guy was every possible thing you could ask for in a president as far as a comedian goes. Usually presidents have one or two things about them that are funny. Bush was dumb and Clinton was horny, but Trump was everything. He was horny and he was racist and he was stupid and he had a mushroom dick. And, you know, I mean, it just went on and on and on. I mean, it was almost too much. It's too easy. Yeah. Now that's a ridiculous statement, but every comedian would resent because what we do is never easy. I mean, you still have to make people laugh. And actually it was harder in a sense because you had to find, at least I tried to find things that were unique and If I'm going to comment on Trump and talk about the things that everyone sees, I'm going to have to find a way to do it 
that doesn't sound like everybody else. So in that way, it was a bit of a challenge. And I'm so glad it ended because I don't know if I could have done another four years. There was just so much volume and so many things. And it was so exhausting. It's just so exhausting. I think that's more than anything else when he went away, even the people who liked him to a degree, not all of them, of course, there are always the proud boys and those kind of people who are sad to see him go. But I think a lot of Republicans who voted for him were also secretly happy that they didn't have to sit home anymore and worry that the fucking, I don't know, head of Homeland Security was Ivanka's wedding planner or some shit. You know, that alone, I think, has taken the temperature down. But we're far from out of the woods on that. I mean, as I keep saying, Trump is the shark that just swam out to sea that he is still going to come back and kill people on the shore. (laughs) He's not gone. And we do need a bigger boat. But for now, yes, it's nice to relax a little. And it's amazing how quickly after he was gone, it seemed like he seemed like he was president in the 1950s, for God's sake. It was like, oh, my God, that's right. This is what normalcy seems like. Yeah, and just (laughs) by easy, I don't mean easy to make the jokes, because, look, if I could be a stand-up, uh, I would be, but I can't. I guess it just meant easy in the sense that it's what was expected, right? The whole fucking audience was against the guy. And so like, you could just lob it up there and they were going to drink it in if, if it was good. Yes, right? and that's also a reason why a lot of the comedy that I did see, I thought sucked. Because late night TV, what has superseded comedy is partisanship. Yes. The sunum bonum of late night comedy is not being funny. It's saying the thing that the audience agrees with. That's what you have to do. And that's not comedy. It's not my brand of comedy. As you know, on my own show, I've certainly incurred the wrath of my own audience. And I mean, everybody has their own style, but my audience, I think appreciates in me more than anything else that I never pull a punch, even if they don't like hearing it. And it's never just going to be what they already think they know. They're going to learn something or at least be entertained by a thought that hadn't crossed their mind before. And maybe it isn't what they have been indoctrinated with. But that's not even on the menu in most of the places you'd go on the dial. So as far as comedy goes, it's a bad place when you have to first service the ideology before the joke that's something i'm i will quit before i do that well i'm glad you went there and look i'm not here to pat you on the ass you don't need me to do that oh go ahead for fuck's sake (laughs) you you do it off stage but but it's amazing i'm always the one that dare not speak its name everybody tells me how great i am and then when it comes to public oh no we better not say that i like bill Maher. there i fucking said it jesus are you worried you're gonna get canceled (laughs) No, but look, seriously, I think that's one of the reasons you've endured as long as you have on late night, because I think being a political comic is inherently risky, right? I mean, you can be political and you can be funny, but I'm not sure you can be partisan and reliably funny. Once you're committed to a side, once you're committed to a narrative, once you're committed to an audience, you're already blinkered, right? The joke has to pass that filter. And that's basically ideology trumping art. And that's not funny. It's not funny. It's boring. Right. And I think that's where a lot of comedy is. Well said. That's exactly right. You said it just right. Do you feel like it's a mistake always and everywhere for 
comics to evolve with the times and reflect the audience or should comics always challenge and confront and whatever? No, comedy can be anything. I mean, I can enjoy very lowbrow comedy. You know, I can enjoy silly stuff. And of course the audience is always going to need to see people who please them. I'm just not going after that audience. I'm going after people who are, first of all, you have to be fairly informed just to enjoy my show to begin with, or else you'll have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, I've had people who have, you know, for one reason or another, come to a taping of the show, probably people I didn't know that well, a friend of a friend or somebody, and they they said to me after the show, it was, yeah, it was cool to be at a taping, but I had no idea what you guys were talking about. I mean, you have no idea. Maybe you do, but I don't know if people have any idea how much people don't know. I mean, I'm talking about the basics, which we just assume on my show. There is, of course, lots of stuff that I'm happy to explain to the audience. And I'm really happy when I can present information that is truly new to a person who's pretty well informed to begin with. I think the last show we did, I was talking about the water problem here in California. And a lot of people said to me the next week or so, I had no idea (laughs) how much water almonds take up in California. And you're right. We cannot afford to grow almonds. We have no water. We can't be growing crops that take just giant amounts of water. We have spent the last two decades in perpetual drought here, yet almond farmers in California have doubled in that time. Despite the fact that almond production alone uses more water than all the humans and businesses in San Francisco and Los Angeles combined. But now there simply isn't enough water to go around and we have to make a painful choice, getting it to the people or getting it in the nuts. Or what we did on Bitcoin. I don't think people understood how much electricity, more than some countries, that it takes to mine Bitcoin for no discernible good reason. This is just a beanie baby that runs on coal. These are all the same people who see themselves as hip and progressive and big environmentalists. Bullshit. You're money-hungry opportunists, and you're not allowed to pretend you care about the environment. But the audience who comes to my show generally understands that there are three branches of government. But don't make the mistake of assuming that a vast number of people in this country have that same understanding because they don't. And that's one reason why it's a very troubling time we live in because it's hard to reform government or to scare people about what's happening to government if they have no idea about what government should be in the first place. This actually reminds me of something you said in an interview you did with Frank Luntz and Jesus, don't get me started on that guy, but you had him on the show and the summer of 2016 or something like that. It was before Trump was elected. And he was saying, he was saying that people were pissed off and you agreed or you kind of chimed in and you said, yeah, they're pissed off because they're ignorant. To answer your question, why people are so angry, mostly it's because they're ignorant. Now, obviously there are things. I can't do that. I think that's wrong. Yes, I'm not going to sit and insult this country. Well, I will. I always have. Yes, I Because it's called real time. Do you feel that that's still true of the right and the left equally? I mean, is that just an American problem or is it asymmetrical? It's definitely true of both. I don't know 
if it's equal. I don't know how you would measure that. Certainly, I used to criticize Fox News exclusively for doing now what I think the left also does to a perhaps not equal degree, but a large degree, which is not necessarily telling a lie, although certainly Fox News has done that too, but just not reporting the other side of the story. You know, just ignoring it. Like it doesn't exist. Like if I remember like one week Trump was talking about how he defeated ISIS and like that very week, <laughs> I just pulled off some crazy shit and I forget what they did, but on Fox news, it just didn't happen. And unfortunately that goes on now on the left too. If they don't like it, it just doesn't exist. And that's a good way of keeping people in their silos. Now, Again, the right is worse and their ideas are more dangerous, like not believing in democracy. But the left just believes in a lot of crazy shit. It's just bumper sticker knowledge. You know, it's just sloganeering. It's memes. You know, silence is violence. And we know that why, because it rhymes stuff that they really haven't thought through. You know, Israel's the bad guy in the Middle East, stuff that they just have heard other people say, or they read on Instagram, it's not really deep. Now, that's not, of course, all the left. It's not the people you and I read in the op-ed columns and so forth. But I'm just talking about the rank and file. It's very easy to get people just to follow some bumper sticker knowledge. And life is more complicated than that, and the issues are. Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, stand-ups have always been some of our greatest social critics. But is that kind of comedy still possible today? That's coming up after the break. For me, the best stand-ups have always forced a kind of societal introspection, usually by holding up a mirror and just telling the truth about what's in it. Hicks did that. Carlin did that. Dave Chappelle does that. I think you do that in your work. But now it seems like a lot of comics go for virality. Do you think that's diluted the power of stand-up or made it less relevant as an art form or as a political and cultural force? No, I think that's true. I, I mean, it's, again, comedy, humor, sense of humor is extremely personal. You can never ask the question, why didn't you laugh at that? Or why did you laugh at that? It's very idiosyncratic. You do or you don't. It hits you or it doesn't. It's true of myself. It's true of everyone. My personal brand of comedy, as far as stand-up, yes, I follow in that tradition. I am not interested in the minutiae of life. There are people who talk about that brilliantly. I mean, obviously, Jerry Seinfeld is the number one practitioner. I mean, he's a guy who can talk about things that are on the surface trivial, and yet the way he does it, it's not trivial. Yeah, There's actual meaning there, and it's very funny. I mean, I've always just been a giant fan. And of course, he has the most imitators because most comics who come along are not political. Most people are not political. It's just not taught in the schools. They don't teach civics. It's not discussed at the dinner table. They don't know history. They never read a newspaper. So that's just not on the 
table for them. They better find something funny about the fucking ketchup bottle at the diner. But that's not me. I was, I grew up in a house with my father was a newsman. We did discuss politics. It was at the dinner table. I did read the newspaper. I was a history major. It was always part. That's what I find interesting to me. It's so much more fascinating and deeper and engaging than talking about trivial stuff. And I, I actually feel bad for comics who have to do that. My, my set changes all the time because politics changes all the time. I mean, I just went back to being on the road. I've done six shows now since June and it's a completely new set basically since the last time I did stand up, which was February, 2020 when Trump was president, of course, but it wasn't hard to, I mean, it took a lot of effort and time, but it wasn't that hard to generate a whole new act because there's new things for me to talk about. I don't have to look at the ketchup bottle and think what's funny about that and come up with a bit about that. Uh, most of which has been done most of by George Carlin. I, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said every bit you think of oh, Carlin did it. Yeah. A lot of that stuff has been done, but Carlin couldn't have done anything about Josh Hawley because he wasn't alive then. <laughs> he just yeah. didn't exist. And he couldn't have foreseen what was going on now and all the issues that are engaging us and not just political issues, but issues about sex me too movement and gender and race and political correctness, all these things that are going on that make this a, a yeasty time to be alive. Yes. It's a challenging time to be alive. And I, I mean, I'm not optimistic quite frankly about the future, certainly just environmentally, but it is not boring. And I've been having a ball being back on the road and doing my thing. And the audience is also, they are hungry for it, and I'm going to do it until I can't. Bill, I know you don't do a lot of these interviews, so I appreciate you being here. Thank you. You got it. Take care. Real Time with Bill Maher airs every Friday at 10 Eastern on HBO, and you can check BillMaher.com for info on upcoming stand-up shows. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. Well, check it out. Who do you think is the best, or the best may be the wrong word, um, or the most important stand-up working right now? Me, or else I wouldn't do it. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode.